This episode of Tales from Ostlantis is brought to you by Ostlantis Premium. Don't you just hate having your favorite podcast interrupted by ads like this? Well, dear listener, you're in luck. Because starting at just three bucks a month, you can support independent Chicano media and receive ad-free episodes, premium episodes, bonus content, and access to our Discord server. Just visit talesfromastlantis.com and click Go Premium, or follow the link in the show notes. And now, on with the show. You must excuse me. I've grown quite weary. This hasn't been easy, I know. But you've learned a lesson. A lesson in honesty. Honesty to yourself and honesty to others. That lesson will stand you in good stead all your life. I think we've all learned a good lesson. I've always heard that honesty is the best policy. Piali, piali no chime. Welcome to another episode of Tales from Astlantis. Today I'm going to be going solo with the episode. Dr. Ariano Tlacatecat has uh, schoolwork to tend to, so I'm going to be riding solo on this one. But I'm being joined today by a special guest, Jan Garcia. And actually, you're the first returning guest that we've had. This is your second episode. So hey, what a privilege. <laughs> yeah, congratulations. Thank you for coming on again. It's, uh, yes, it's nice to have you. Jan, for those who don't know, is a Nahuatl language instructor. He's part of an organization called Tlachtol Tapasoli, which means what? Uh, language nest? Exactly. Language nest. And... You guys are based out of California, right? Is that where everybody with the organization is living? Yeah, in Los Angeles area. Cool. So what got you interested in not only teaching Nahuatl, but learning Nahuatl in, in the first place? Yeah, so I wanted to learn Nahuatl since I was in high school. Now, I lived pretty far away from Los Angeles. I didn't really have much exposure, but... Just from reading books, I was able to, you know, catch up and get the general gist of, of a lot of the Chicano history that, that we had. Um, and, you know, my parents, my dad always talked a lot to me about, you know, our background and, and where we came from. And he would tell me, share a lot of the culture that, that we have from our ranch, which, which is not just, you know, has the general, a lot of shared Mexican culture, but also has a lot of the... Uh, we, we have a lot of like Nahuatl words in, in our town that aren't really used in other towns. We have uh, a lot of farming vocabulary that he shares with me that, that you don't get to hear much anywhere else. Um, and so starting from there, I was able to kind of get uh, exposed to researching this and just reading books when I was in the high school. And so I wanted to learn Nahuatl. I got a book, uh, I think it was one of James Lockhart's books about mm-hmm. how to learn Nahuatl. But it was, it was classical now, it was now it is written kind of thing. And, uh, you know, and it, I had a lot of trouble just getting through the first chapter that I just kind of gave up, just put the book away. And it was a nice thing, but I just started reading more just general history books. Um, it wasn't until I was in college taking a Chicano studies classes that I got forwarded an email from our uh, professor, uh, who's now teaching at University of New Mexico in Chicano studies, uh, an opportunity to learn Nahuatl. Uh, in Mexico 
And so, you know, I hopped on that opportunity back uh, as fast as I can, you know, that there weren't many Facebook groups back then. The Nawa community was really almost non-existent online. The only sources you could find were like linguists, uh, linguist uh, list serves that they kind of had back then. You know, the we had internet, but not that it wasn't really bringing the Nawa community together at all, really. And you would hardly find any information online back then. Just a few websites at, at that time. Um, so, yeah, I had to go to spend my whole summer in Mexico and take a class through EDS, the Instituto de Docencia e Investigación Etnológica de Zacatecas. So it's an organization that uh, partners with indigenous people who are studying and living in Zacatecas. And a lot of them tend to be from the Huasteca. And so there were already there's already this community of uh, this diaspora of Huastecos because they, they've been leaving the Huasteca area. That's their crisis that they're having right now, that they've been having, that everyone leaves and almost no one comes back. And if they do, they come back with for, foreign ideologies and languages. Uh, they're kind of threatening the local culture. But uh, they had great, uh, great professors who were trained through a partnership with Yale um, instructors and they had pedagogy taught over from Yale. So they knew to do hands on activities at fun. They had to always they would always think about how to do uh, games, interaction. Uh, that's how their class was all about. We were standing up every 10 minutes. We were doing trying to talk in, in groups every five minutes. We didn't take almost any grammar notes at all. And then in the afternoon, we would get to take uh, introductions to like classical Nahuatl, which is more of the written and a little bit more grammar based. But um, I just loved it. I loved it. It was great. And I came back and um, I didn't even know about Mecha yet. So, mm-hmm. so but, um, you know, I got recruited to come into to Mecha and, and join that. And then before you knew it, I was doing uh, workshops because Mecha, a big thing we'd have is have conferences and reach out to younger youth. Um, I was really young still at that time, but I was already starting to do some, uh, the basic workshop uh, one day, you know, their, their 30 minute to 50 minute workshop of an intro- uh, introduction where I, we do this hands-on activity with Nahuatl. And so that's how I didn't forget it. That's how I also kept it, uh, alive with me because it, it was not, it wasn't that easy to find resources or people who could speak Nahuatl. Um, yeah, for sure. sure. I remember when I first started trying to to learn the language, it was just a, a handful of websites and then some books that I had bought when I was living in Mexico. But it, it makes it, I don't know, it's, it's difficult when you can't actively hear it mm-hmm. because you're looking at the words and you're like, am I even saying this right? I, like, yeah, is my pronunciation anywhere close? And then the other thing was I was learning like, three different variants. Right. But I didn't know that. So I didn't know, uh, you know, what, what words were coming from classical and, and modern and from Guerrero and, and central Mexico. Or, so, you know, Morelos. So I was like learning this, uh, mishmash version of, of Nahuatl that I'm sure if people heard me speaking it, they'd be like, what the hell is this guy saying? <laughs> And that's our situation, you know, there's so much more work that can be done that, you know, if anyone wants to get in, involved in, in creating more materials for Nahuatl, there is no, it, it's not even close to being finished or, or being enough, really. Uh, you know, there's so many more books that need to be created. I try to create one to help people get into Huasteca, but there's, you know, over five variants in Puebla alone. Uh, I have friends who, who come from certain towns and like, oh, I know, I've heard of your variant. 
there's almost nothing written about your variant. There's like wow. one list written about your variant, like a, a vocabulary list of like a hundred words. Like that's not, that's nothing. That's not even close to what it should be, you know, to, to, to have all these, uh, we, we need these books. We need more resources <laughs> to be published and created for us. Yeah, for sure. And the thing that I like about your book is it's focused on modern speakers, right? So yeah. I noticed that, you know, because I'm, I'm a danzante, I, I go to the ceremonia and, and I do the danzas and stuff. And the one thing I've noticed within danza communities is this desire to only study classical, what they call classical Nahuatl. And that's cool, right? Like, you know, yeah. if, if, if that's what you want to learn, then by all means, uh, do it. But it, there seems to be like a... Um, Preference? Yeah. Yeah, like like people just don't don't feel very compelled to speak the the modern variant. Mm -hmm. Like if it's not um, just Im important to them, like they want to learn the classical of what the ancient Mexica spoke, right? <laughs> and what I like about your book is the the emphasis on um, learning a modern variant of Nahuatl because that's why I study Nahuatl because I want to be able to speak with people. I want to be able to right. go to Mexico and communicate with with other individuals. Yeah, yeah. It, it's one thing to hear someone tell you about their culture. It's another thing to understand it because you can speak the language and be like, "Oh, I get, I get exactly what's going on in this ceremony. I get exactly what's going, what they're talking about in this in the ceremony, the incantations, or, or and you know, every aspect of life. Really, it, it's involved in all those things. So I, I believe right now there are, I think at least sixty three recognized indigenous languages in Mexico, right? 63. Yeah, and, and, and some of those have sub-varieties mm -hmm. within themselves that don't understand each other. It's not, it's not very clean. To, it's, not a, it's not a clean, easy process thing to do. Yeah. Like you can have something like a web. Think of a spider web where varieties that are close to each other can understand each other, but the ones that are far away from each other might have a little bit more difficulty that you could almost say that they're separate languages. Mm -hmm. But it's like, it always depends on from whose perspective are you asking, you know? Mm -hmm. So even then you can't just say, oh, there's four, you know, let's say mystic languages. No, it just depends on which town. It's all, it's all relative, you know, mm -hmm. where to where. It's, it's hard to create lines. And what do we consider one language starts and the other one begins? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then within Nahuatl, I, I believe the Huasteca variant is the largest, right? The, the totally. most widely spoken? Yeah, yeah. And if you... There's certain towns that do little small minor changes within each other that if you want to get all nitty gritty about it, you could divide it up into sub varieties too. But it's easy to consider it one big variety uh, that all together makes up at least half of all Nahuatl speakers. So if anyone wants to learn a spoken variety of Nahuatl, that's why I, I recommend the Huasteca one. The pronunciation is so similar from classical. It keeps the TL sounds there. Um, it keeps the preference for O over U kind of thing. Um, it, it's a lot of it is very similar to classical in, in how, because it's considered very conservative. They haven't changed a, a lot of their sounds. Um, so if you're just talking about the sound, it's it's very it's relatively conservative there. Um, and it, you get to speak with native speakers today. We're still mm -hmm. alive in communities, you know. So we're almost almost a million people just in the Huasteca who can speak it. So. Tlatol Tapasoli, um, are you one of the original founders of the organization, or how did this organization come about? 
We'll be back after a quick break. Have you picked up your Mexica calendar for the year 12 Flint? Or how about a paperback copy of The Four Disagreements? Just visit talesfromastlantis.com for all the latest merchandise and show some love for your favorite podcast. That's talesfromastlantis.com for all the latest merchandise. Now, back to the show. Yeah, uh, I got in. There were people who knew that I was occasionally doing workshops here and there, that I was someone to talk to if you wanted to learn or translate things into Nahuatl, you know, etc. And so someone, uh, he, he was involved with like a local chapter for, with AIM, asked me to uh, give a class in Nahuatl. And I was, he said he had some friends who wanted to learn. So I was like, okay. I've never done it in Los Angeles before, like an actual course. I did one in Orange County before. That was just a, you know, like a, a, a course of 10 weeks or something like that, you know. So I was like, okay, I'll do the same thing. I'll do a course for 10 weeks in Los Angeles. And, you know, because... I realized quickly that it gets problematic where you I had to do a start and stop point all the time because, you know, uh, we'd get new people coming in and they'd be like, well, we're already five classes behind. I want to I definitely want you if you want to you came here to learn. I want to include you. But at the same time, the people who've already come five times, I also it's this really hard balance, you know, trying to keep everyone happy and do the, what's right for everybody. And I'm only one person. Right. Um so we had that situation. So I was like, okay, I think what I have to do is just create a start class and then do a 10 week period and then we'll end. And usually by after some time, people's interest, uh, there, there are some people who are like, okay, I really have to study or put effort into this. And like, I just wanted, you know, a little exposure. I don't, I don't actually want to speak it fluently necessarily. So then, you know, after, you know, people's commitments or, or things happen, life happens. So I had to create a start and stop point. But when we started in L.A., we created an announcement that we're going to, hey, we're going to meet at this park. You know, we don't have a space. The, the rent in L.A. is insane. I bet. Um, and I don't, I'm not affiliated with any universities to just go in there and use a space. You got to be really be part of a student organization. Otherwise, you have to get insurance and all these, you know, it, it's this whole other system that, you know, it's, it's a whole, <laughs> it's a whole very, I don't know, American system that we obviously that we that that's involved in all this. Um, so we just did it at a park and I made a little announcement on the local uh, local radio uh, KPFK um, and next thing you know like 55 people showed up at the park wow <laughs> yeah it was a huge crowd and, and you were the so, only teacher and I was the only teacher oh, yeah man. <laughs> <laughs> but luckily I could I try to do well I, you could probably tell I have a pretty soft voice so I, I'm not very good at projecting my voice very loudly but I did with what I could and um you know, knowing that you can do methods that are where we're standing up and we're interacting and I teach them a little drill and people practice it and they do it in groups with each other. It's actually not that hard to to manage it. Um, so it, it started off like that. And I was like, OK, so everyone's like, OK, so the class is over. Now what? I'm like, OK, I guess we'll meet back here next week, next time, same time next week. And yeah people came back and and the group stayed pretty big for a long time and uh we were just doing it outside the park um as long as we could you know except for well it doesn't really it doesn't really rain too much here in in california anyways but we kept it going there for a good amount of time i got to meet a lot of people um who just come from all different kinds of circles you know um 
especially the dancer circles, but every every kind of circle, uh, every every part of social life we we got coming there. Um, especially Chicanos, but uh, people of other backgrounds too, who came out, and, uh, and we kept it going. Um, Diego, who's now one of our teachers, he I was already familiar. He was taking class. He was learning Guerrero Nahuatl. Um, so he had some familiarity already, but this was something new for him. Huasteca Nahuatl, you know. Um, every most of everyone else, uh, Steph was already learning a little bit of Nahuatl too with EDS, but everyone else was a beginner. Um, and before you knew it, people who were students eventually became teachers because that was my whole thing. Uh, that classes, we kept going. The classes kept going every weekend, every weekend. We, and uh, it, it, I soon realized, hey, this is going to be a big commitment. Like people are really, really interested in Los Angeles. Like there's a big interest here. And I'm trying to fill a gap in the community, that, this need that happens that we have. Um, and I'm like we, we we ain't got no money. We're not a nonprofit. We don't yeah. have uh, grants or anything like that. So I'm just, you know, just I'll pass around a little donation box if anyone wants to help out pitching for my gas. That's I'm happy with that. <laughs> um, so eventually we got kicked out of the park. Uh, uh, they were building in these fancy new apartments next to the park, and uh, it probably looked bad. <laughs> They're trying to bring in a certain kind of people to the apartments. <laughs> yeah, a bunch people. of Chicanos just <laughs> hanging out in a circle, speaking a weird language. <laughs> like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> so, yeah, the police eventually came and they're like, you guys have a permit for this? I'm like, geez, you need a permit to get together at a park, wow. I guess. <laughs> so we're like, man, you know, we're, we're trying to recruit. We're trying to. This is a difficulty where we're trying to revitalize and and uh revitalize a big part of our culture but we're starting without our traditional institutions you know where every other culture has allowed their institutions to survive to this day that they can rely on each other for money you know we we have this giant beautiful um hindu temple uh in one of my around here in chino hills it's amazing and the way they built it is the community got together and pitched in money for it because they already have their own churches, institutions. And for us, a lot of our money goes to like Christian or Catholic churches. And more and more it's Christian versus Catholic these days. Um, so we, we have to build these institutions ourselves, you know, from scratch so we can have our own spaces. And so some people are doing that. And we found a group who was doing that in Los Angeles who they, they have this small building, but they use it for all these, you know, cultural events that are happening in Los Angeles. And so uh, we got involved and they offered us a space that we could use on every, once a week, one time a week. And so we kept going using that space. And my mission now was, okay, I need to train more people, train these guys to be my teachers. And before long, I had them, um, I had a group of my students give the first lesson of the introduction. It's like, you guys, y'all know the, the beginning parts already. So... It helped me. I think it could be really good for y'all to do it yourselves. So I'm just going to watch you guys. I'm just going to watch y'all do it. Um, but y'all have the resources you need already. So, yeah, I just threw them in there. And uh, they, they later told me they, they didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> Sink or swim. <laughs> Not what style. <laughs> yeah. But they told me that they really appreciated afterward because they really grew a lot like that. When when you're the teacher, when you're sharing the information that you taught, you're sharing your notes to someone, you're like, oh, wait, I have these gaps in knowledge here. Mm -hmm. And what you do know, you're like, I know it even better. Like it's cement 
Absolutely. I I find that too. Like the more I'm able to teach something, the better it makes me. And Mm -hmm. the, and the, and like you said, it, it reveals to me what I don't know. So stuff that I need to focus more on, but it also helps my understanding. So I think getting people to teach is, uh, is a great strategy. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, And I got part of this, um, there's this method out there called, where are your keys? We can go into it more later if you want, but um, they have a lot of principles and they work a lot with Californian native tribes or tribes on the West Coast, small tribes that we have a lot of languages where on the West Coast where we only have a dozen of speakers left, sometimes three, sometimes two, sometimes one, sometimes the last one just passed away. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they, they can't easily create this program where like, how are we going to teach the teacher to teach? You know, there's not enough resources to teach every elder to be able to spend all their free time to teach the next generation. Like it just being realistic, it, it just can't happen like that. It just, there's not, not enough resources for that. So they found methods uh, where it's again, focused on interaction. And there's certain kinds of interactions you wanna have that help you, uh, help the students pick up on, be kind of like hunters where they're looking for the knowledge themselves. Instead of just being like passive, like give me the knowledge, but learning how to be a hunter in the language to go out and actively look for the information you need and create situations where you can get that. But one of their philosophical things they have too is like, where are you on a scale of one to five on how well do you know this material? And if you're a three, you can still teach someone who's a two or who's a one, you know? If you're a four, maybe you're not all the way an expert, but you can still teach everyone who's down here, you know? So that's that's what I did too, because I don't know, I can't think of every single Nahuatl word off the top of my head if someone asked for a translation. Uh, because I, I would if I actually got to live in the Huasteca, but my life is over here and this is where I'm at. And I got my roots over here. So, um, so you know, I haven't been able to do that. But anyone for, but there are native speakers who have that, uh, who can find, give you all these words on the spot really fast and tell you, you know, how you use that word and what it implies if you use that word, all these kinds of things. So maybe I'm a four, but I can still teach everyone to get to my level. And I want everyone who I've taught something to get other people to do that. And that way it can spread, not just be like this hierarchy where it slowly builds up like a tree, but rather spreads like like grass. Yeah, that's a great strategy. It's it's pretty similar because I, uh, I trained Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. It's pretty similar in there where you know, you have the belt ranking systems and you might not be a black belt. Maybe you're a purple belt, but mm-hmm. you could still teach the lower belts, right? Yeah. Like you can't instruct the black belts, obviously, but you, you could be, you know, put in a position where you're basically like uh, a coach and you can help train the, the lower belts. And then once you get to brown belt, then you're, you know, the, the, the number of people that you're allowed to, to train becomes wider right until you get to yeah. that black belt level and then you could teach everybody so i think that's a good strategy to have i think that's one thing that holds us back from a very western perspective is you're expected to well no you can't do this until you've attained this degree mm-hmm. and so you can't yeah. teach you're not qualified quote unquote uh to teach so i think you know and especially something with language preservation language revitalization you need you know every little bit of knowledge out there 
yeah. is is necessary. And if people can teach, even if they could only teach you how to count to 10, right? Well, that's still something. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And and one of the mistakes I made when I was younger is like, okay, if I want to get involved in this language work, I guess I have to study linguistics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess I got to dedicate my life to, to studying linguistics, you know? And like, well, maybe I studied it and I love it and it's great and it has helped me in a lot of ways. But at the same time, like the basic work of language revitalization is just getting out there and, and doing it. <laughs> the methodologies you use, they're important, but not as much as how well you use them anyway. Not as yeah. much as how much of an intuition you have on teaching, which you get by teaching anyways. You so know, you get it from experience. Yeah. So so did you guys in, in, in the organization, did you develop your own curriculum? Were you using the curriculum from EDS? Like, how did that come about? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And uh, there there's there's a good n- number of now teachers now in Mexico and throughout the area, and I've tried to try to push people to work together so we can all share our knowledge because s- some things that we can learn from English and about general methods of pedagogy of how to teach languages we can apply them ourselves. We don't have to start from scratch. We can take what we know already works and use it for now. But at the same time, a lot of the nitty-gritty details are going to be so different because now it's just such a different language from English um, that we, we got to start uh, the way we're going to start and the things that we're going to, the the form and the content of the, what we're teaching is going to be totally different. So, you know, we're not going to teach a class where the first day, like you might do for another language, like how to get to work and how to talk about work kind of thing, you know? Um, this idea of job and career and what I do nine to five, that vocabulary is not important in Nahuatl. That's not, you know, that's not native things that you need to worry about, about, you know, Saturday, you know, the days of the week and, and the time of the day. And at four, this very, this very English Western kind of thing, like at eight o'clock, I do this. At yeah. nine o'clock, I do this. <laughs> that makes sense like this, you know? And it makes sense if you're learning German, Japanese or whatever. So some of the methods is, we take a lot of the EDS things to start with because for beginners, anyone can get involved with it, all ages. We've had kids come and they can participate and pick up on things when it's dynamic, just as well as adults. Um, so that method is, is great. When you start getting a little bit more advanced towards our beginner to intermediate levels, we introduce a little bit of grammar, but I've always told my co my my colleagues and my students and teacher co- and teach co-teachers too that I, we want to reduce as much as we can English giving explanations because they've learned the grammar and now it's so easy for them and me too to fall into the trap of explaining the grammar and it's like if you're explaining it you're not you're not practicing the language really you got to be practicing the language creating situations role-playing to to do it so I have this idea and we might not necessarily all uh, even myself be doing getting got, have gotten to that idea yet but we're all working on it we're all progressing toward that but yeah we have the EDS method we have some sessions where we can do the where are your keys games so that's that method I was talking about earlier where you only need like four objects four nouns and just me- focus on memorizing those four nouns and you can build up your knowledge of grammar using those four nouns you can do things like is this a rock is this a pencil 
And by knowing what a rock and pencil is already, you could be like, no, that's not a pencil. You could teach how to say that. And now that's not a pencil. That's a rock. That's not a rock. That's a pencil. Yes, that is a pencil. That's my pencil. That's your pencil. That's her pencil. Is that your pencil now? I could switch everything. Yes, that is my, his pencil. No, that's not my pencil. Next level. Because you gave it to me. Yeah. Right? Give me the pencil. I will give you the pencil if you give me the rock. Huh. I, okay. You know, it gets building up on that. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that and seems way more structures. effective than. Yeah. Because I know a lot of people when they first start learning Nahuatl, 100, I mean, not 100% of the time, but in my personal experience, a lot of the time, the majority of the time, people start off with stuff like, well, colors and yeah. counting. Uh-huh. And it's like, that stuff's cool. Don't get me wrong. You should know the colors and, and how to count. But it's so much more helpful to actually jump right into nouns mm-hmm. and verbs and like, how do we use these how things use in an actual conversation, right? Definitely. And I see that mistakes being done in indigenous bilingual schools in Mexico. I've seen mixed Mixteco schools where they actually do some Mixtec in the classroom with kids. Uh, that's better than a lot of ta- a lot of schools in the Huasteca where they ignore Nahuatl for the most part or do like 10% a little bit of Nahuatl, but everything else is in English, is Spanish. Um, and yeah, they, that's, that's something that they often have difficulty with. They, they just... They might just teach names of animals. They might just teach colors. And it was like, well, okay, but how do I use that in a sentence? You know? Yeah. Yeah. How can I actually say that is, uh, even being able to say that is a pencil, that is a dog. Mm-hmm. So I'm not just saying dog, cat, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah. yeah, I see it in local native California languages too, that I've worked with young kids who are working to revitalize the local languages here. But it's, it's just the a lot of times just the animals vocabulary. So we want to do something that you can use. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I'm seeing, though, and something that I think is super helpful with Nahuatl is that Nahuatl is one of the most heavily written languages, right? There's a lot of material, historical material, colonial material through the modern where you could actually pick up a, a book and, and see Nahuatl written and interact with it in that way. And I don't know if you're seeing this happen in California amongst the California natives, but I know a lot of uh, native groups here um, in New Mexico don't want their language written down, you know, for their own reasons. But I'm, I'm like, man, should that be reconsidered? I mean, I'm not going to tell people how they should deal with their own language or teach their own language. But when you have languages that are on the verge of extinction and you're not wanting to write them down, it's like, oh, man, you know what? I shudder to think it like what's going to happen to those languages. Yeah, it, it's a hard, it's a hard situation because we we have traditional things and cultural aspects that worked for the culture for a long time, but that's also at a time when we didn't have colonialism. Mm-hmm. That's that's threatening to to wipe things out, and so everyone's got to really consider these two options. I've never heard that for Nahuatl, in with any native speakers, it's never been a thing. Um, at the most, what, what I have seen with native speakers is if you're going to record or take pictures of any native, sometimes like you have to give a good explanation of what you're doing because people, for good reasons, obviously, even before social media and people, people's pictures could go anywhere, even before that, you know, people, native people are more particular about being, you're getting a piece of them, kind of, you're kind of catching people off guard in a sense. 
where you're re recording them or they don't there's a lot of mistrust there there's uh traditional towns um in chiapas where if you take pictures at their sacred site the local natives will put you in the local jail you know around chamula area um for for taking a pic they're, they're very strict on things like that um uh, i've recorded native elders and they're like and they agreed to let me record them because i was like i, I just want to see how you say the words yeah so i'm not trying to publish it or anything and ask me all oh, right but you're not sharing this with anyone right and like i had a but they they got to trust me to to be where i told them yeah I'm, this is just for me you know I'll, i can delete this when i'm done with it of course so sometimes with audio recordings um they just like i for good reason want to want to know that they're included in what's going on with that but for written material everyone's been like oh that's cool like i want i that's 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 something that's really cool well one of the <laughs> things i'll with, say uh, go ahead oh yeah but i'll say not when you go to certain i i also seen other traditional towns in mexico where there's also for most people books just don't have an importance like if you write something down cool but you know i've I made a dictionary in Misteco and I was passing it. I wanted to hand it out to people because they helped me create it. And, and the people who are taking me around, they're like, mm, maybe don't give it to that family. And I'm like, why? They, they, gave, they helped me. They deserve a free copy of this book. Like, oh, they, they kind of, you know, when people run out of toilet paper, they just use books, you know, and, and, and Yikes. <laughs> that's, that's the only purpose. For that, yeah. really. Like, this is what like, paper okay. is here, buddy. <laughs> you keep your book. Well, the thing I like about your book, and your book is called Learn Nahuatl, Language of the Aztecs and Modern Nahuas. It's in its second edition. And the thing I really like about the second edition is that you've adopted the uh, the Inali um, orthography, right? Yeah. And it's funny because I've always been, before I even knew anything about orthographies, if you look at the stuff that I wrote back in like 1998, 1999, I always used a K and a W and people would give me, you know, people would give me shit for that. They'd be like, why are you doing that? There's no such thing as a W in Nahuatl. And I'm like, Oh, but there's an H and a U. What are you talking about? <laughs> so my whole strategy was I'm just writing this stuff down in a way that's helping me pronounce right. the words, uh, as correct as possible. Sure. And <laughs> now I'm seeing more and more people using that uh, style of writing. What, what caused you to change from one edition to the next, uh, adopting this new orthography? Uh, well, I'll tell you, it, it, I, I'm, I was pretty conservative about keeping to the classical-based spelling that it imitates what, what was using, kind of more about the classical kind of stuff. Um, and I was pretty hard, I'm pretty stubborn. <laughs> I was pretty stubborn about even thinking about moving. And maybe I'm a rule follower like that. I'm like, no, this is, it's been like this, this is my, you know, I was very uh, uncompromising in that sense. But when I actually got to see that native Nawas who are actually like prominent people in the Nawat community are actually got together and thought about it um, deliberately and didn't just, it wasn't just some political thing. Cause that's the thing. That's how it gets taken discredited oftentimes where it's like, Oh, well this political thing and this political thing. And there is a lot of politics involved in, in different orthographies. And and I'm still not really much a fan of the J's or the U's that have been promoted were promoted by by Sep in the '80s. Uh, it's it's pretty sloppy. It's like it tries to be it tries to be based more on the sounds, but still falls short in by relying itself on Spanish conventions by yeah. using the J, where it's not pronounced even like a J. It's not a hard J sound. 
Um, so it's like imitating Spanish. It's like got the both the, the worst of both worlds in my opinion. But I saw native Nawas consider it and it even asked me, like start asked me to to consider using the, the news system. And uh, when I thought about it, I was like, well, actually it does make a lot of sense. It would be actually easier to teach people to use to, to use this because you don't have to teach them how to read Spanish. Because otherwise you have to teach them how to read uh -huh. Spanish conventions yeah. first. Right, you have the whole, it's a C before an I and E, but it changes to a Z after, when it's, you know, before like a, at the end of a syllable. And there's all these really uh, weird things where the letters change based on the position of where it's at, you know, at the, at the word. Is it before an A or is it before an I? And that's all about Spanish. And it makes sense for Spanish because Spanish has this history where sounds changed and they kind of got stuck like that. Same thing with English. We pronounce things differently. We don't say knicht anymore. We say knight, you yeah. know, knight in shining armor. <laughs> uh, but we still spell it like that because of its history. So uh, I realized, well, it's easier. It, it make you can. It's easier to teach people because I don't have to teach them how to deal with the C's that change into Q's or the C's changing to Z's or the H's. So I got to skip a lot of that and and just focus more on the actual sound. But what I do still do is I still represent the morphology of the word. I still keep to the history of, of where that word comes from. So like the word tonati, yeah, it's spelled, it's pronounced tonati in the Huasteca, but we know it comes from the word tonatiu, right, in, in older times. Um, and the W just changes to an H in the Huasteca. Mm -hmm. And, and for, for listeners who don't know, what does tonati mean? It's a sun. <laughs> the sun or day. Your sun or day. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I still write it with a W to represent that it used to be there. And not only does it represent that it used to be there, it also matches up with center varieties. So now you don't have like 10 different ways to write one word. It can be all done with one, one, one same system, right? So if I write the word kashtoli, you know, uh, that's the word for 15. I can still, I'll put two L's mm -hmm. because it comes, because it comes from kashtol plus the li. So I keep to where the word comes from uh, more than just pure sound. Because uh, if we did that for English, it wouldn't make sense. Like we'd have British people spell the word car without an R. It's spell C-A. Yeah. And you need like yeah. 10 different vowel sounds. It'd just be a mess. So English doesn't do that. And no one's, no one who's, almost no one's saying we need to change the way we spell English. Yeah. You know? Um, and so when we give too much into that, in the in Nahuatl, then we're focusing so much on small towns and their particular way of pronouncing it that you lose the ability to hobby together a little bit. So yeah, I I, I incorporated the, the new system because it's it's got a lot of a lot of advantages to it. The one thing that, that I'm still struggling with though with the new system is when there's a W at the end of the word. And I'm like Oh, is that just an H or? It's just an H in the West. If you're pronouncing it Huasteco style, it's just an H. If okay. you're pronouncing it Central style, it's pronounced like a W. Okay. Yeah, that's that's about it. So that that would make sense using Tonati as mm -hmm. an example. So it'd be yeah. Tonatiu or Tonati. That's right. Uh-huh. Okay. Nice. That makes sense. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I use your book and your videos uh along with the classes that Diego does on YouTube. And for me, that's worked 
like perfectly. I, I think uh-huh. that uh, anybody out there who's listening right now, if you want to get into Nahuatl and you don't, you know, you don't live in California, you don't have access to attend these classes in person, you know, I, I would try that out. But you also, do you offer classes personally on like on Zoom or is that other people within your organization that are doing the Zoom classes? Most actively doing that are other people within the organization doing that. Um, I've, I did it once last year with, with the whole COVID thing starting. And, um, and we've been holding off on in-person classes, which is, yeah. our, best, which is our best method of teaching. Uh, that we, we, all, of our, all of our styles and methods are based on teaching in person. And teaching online, it's, it's just not the same experience. But I did do it last summer. And you know, I'm considering doing it again this summer because there, there were a lot of people asking that, for me to do it again. Um, offer that again and yeah they're good but they're like 100 people that showed up uh, that i i made enrollment up to about 100 people wow and a good number stuck through uh so yeah there's definitely the need for that to well happen. that's inspiring to hear because that's one thing about learning a language right is it takes commitment it takes mm-hmm. practice it takes you know a level of really wanting to do it and i i don't know I think some people just think like, well, I just want to learn how to say, you know, my name is this. And then they just bounce on the class and and they're happy with with that. And that's fine, you know, if that's all you have time for. But, you know, I I teach uh, a lot about the calendar system and I see the same thing with the calendar system is most, not I wouldn't say most, but a lot of people just want to know what day they were born on. Okay, yeah. And, And they don't, you know they don't really care like how the whole system functions how and how the sun is observed and what all the names mean. They're just like, just tell me what, na- what, what day I'm born. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good at that. Yeah. So it's, it's inspiring to hear that a lot of people stuck it out because that's one thing when you're learning a language. And like you said, when we, uh, cause I, I used to hold little, uh, like a study circle at my house, people would come over okay. and we would just have like a little study group, yeah. but people would come and go. Right. And it's like, you right. were saying three, I was trying to do it like as linear lessons. So by the time lesson four was around, you had new people show up and it's like, man, you know, got to start from the very beginning, you know, are the people who've already gone through it going to get bored and leave? Or are they going to see the value in repeating it? You know, how, how far back should I go? So yeah. I think your strategy of just being like, you know, here's a set amount of classes, here's the beginning, here's the end, and you, you need to show up. And if you want to start, here's when we start, right? Like, here's yeah. the next round of classes, because you can't come in on class number five, because then you'll be like, well, what? I don't even know what's going on. Well, when we were uh, doing in-person classes in Los Angeles, we did actually find a way to accommodate for everyone, because that's what we just how to be able to do because we were we were in a space where we we're getting a lot of publicity mm. and so we'd have at least five people new people every single sunday so we had we found a system where we had one teacher dedicate themselves to be the intro day first first day teacher so like an onboarding if it was your first <laughs> class you had like the onboard people would go over there but then there's other problems where there's three classes going on at the same time in, in one room and so uh They'd be like, well, we can't hear where because this group's having a lot of fun and enjoying their learning and we're doing like grammar and 
Yeah. <laughs> so there's a lot, lot, lot of logistical things. I'd, I'd love to hear what other community-based classes, how they figure it out. But if we, if we have enough people, I think that's just a system that would work. Well, my dream is, you know, hopefully COVID subsides and yeah. I'm able to uh, make Café con Nahuatl not only a web series, but actually a, a weekly, like, in-person gathering. And yeah. honestly, I wish it could be more than weekly because the way I learn best is just through total immersion. Total immersion, of course. And one one thing that's been helping me is there's the uh, the Facebook group, but they also have a YouTube page. Um, Victoriano uh, Teposteco, I think he's always posting onto it. And you, yeah, you're you're part of it too, right? It's the the Seome Tlahtoli. Nechicoli Seome Tlahtoli. Yeah, um, that group is great because you got those videos of just people talking. And what I do is I download them and I convert them to MP3s. Ah. And when I'm out driving, I just listen. Oh wow! <laughs> and it, it helps me out because you know I don't understand everything, obviously, but. I'll just catch myself like, oh man, I'm not even concentrating, but I know what they're talking about, right? Yeah. Like, and it's, it's just there all the time. And I think that helps me the most. So I'm always encouraging people to go check out those those videos. Yeah, and, and that's why I, I tell people at the beginning of my classes, like, by the way, if you've got any talent, consider learning now and using your talent with it, you know? If you know how to make music, if you know how to make videos, um, if you know how to just animate, make video games, whatever you skill you got going on there, consider doing it with Nahuatl or working with us to do it because there's a big lack of multimedia uh, material out there. You know, I have some Huasteco friends, but who live in the city. So they, they want to teach their kids to speak and they actually want to teach their kids to speak Nahuatl and their kids want to learn how to speak Nahuatl. But if it's just you and your and one parent and yeah. no one else around you speak speaking it, it's hard, but at least if there were multimedia available, it'd be one more resource. Mm-hmm. And they're like, well, we don't have, there's no, there's no children's books in now that you can easily find. You know, you can't just go to uh, the, uh, the, the Mexican equivalent of Barnes and Noble and, yeah. <laughs> and find a Nahuatl book out there. You know? um, and if you do, it's history, not, not kids' books. Yeah. yeah. Or, and same thing. Uh, that's why I think uh, they did Sesame Street in Nahuatl. And that got a good amount of views because, it's the it's the one of its one of its kind. It just isn't that many materials like that. So, anyone listening, consider <laughs> consider helping out the Nahuatl revitalization in, in any method that you you think you can support. Absolutely. And what you know, what would you say? You know, why? What made you pick Nahuatl specifically? Like out of all the other the the languages, because I know what drew me to Nahuatl. Um, and it's because I, it's like directly related to my family, right? Like my family tree yeah. goes like straight back to Tenochtitlan and uh, Atzacoalco. Like I've, we found exactly where our family comes from. And so that really made me inspired to learn Nahuatl. Um, but I'm always curious, like what makes other people want to learn Nahuatl? Yeah, well, my background, uh, you know, I, it, it's a it's a privilege, but also unfortunate. My most of my native background is the question background and um you know a lot of my ancestry i've researched goes back we haven't moved very long for very much we're all coming from the same general area that are all the question uh based backgrounds um and uh no one knows exactly what we spoke <laughs> oh wow. we were a small we're a small group 
you know, mostly semi-nomadic and our other rebellions that happened back in the day really screwed us over um, in some in some aspects. And then the arrival of Guadalajara just brought so many Spaniards to Jalisco, like so many that uh, Spanish quickly overtook the local languages. Like we're talking about like by the 1700s, it, um, almost nothing was spoken left of uh, our language. Um, so we have this mystery, like what is it that was spoken? Well, there's a priest who wrote a book about the grammar of Nahuatl spoken in Tonalá, Guadalajara. When you look at it, grammatically, it's the same, very similar to the one spoken in Jalisco today, or last century, um, in the Tuxpan area, where they have this low ending, that, basically this low ending that makes things plural. And only varieties in the west coast of Mexico have it. So it's like, oh, that's not central Nahuatl, that's actually a Jalisco Nahuatl. Um, so, so for sure, some of my ancestors spoke Nahuatl, they might have picked it up because of the priests. They might have picked it up because of the Tlaxcaltecas. Um, just, just all the support to establishing Nahuatl back then. For whatever reason, at least I know some of my ancestors spoke Nahuatl. So I'm like, well, it, it's, it just made sense for me. Um, just being the language, the unifying language, you know. And of course, people will say, well, yeah, I was unifying through violence, but that's how the whole world speaks any language. Um, but it still it was unifying for trade and for positive things too in, in older times. And so it's just something that made a lot of sense to me. So as a, as a teacher of Nahuatl, are there any um, specific moments that stand out that you, you're like, made you feel really good? Like, yeah, that's why I'm doing this. <laughs> uh, people are always so, so thankful. Uh, you know, and people give me more credit than I think I need sometimes. And I'm like, no, no, just you guys put in the effort. Yeah, I'm teaching, but, you know, I'm I'm proud of everyone all the time who, who just put in the effort to get this far and to be their own teachers and to lead their own groups now. Um, it's it just, the, the, I, I haven't done had many, like, uh, we've done a couple of ceremonies, you know, for uh, like graduation or congratulations on, on getting this far and getting certificates out and, and things like that. Um, but they're all, they're all good moments. Whenever we're able to come together um, as our group, because our group is involves not just the teachers, but people who are just supportive and who are always there. And because we, we grew together, we, we became our own community in that sense. Um, just whenever we were able to come together in positive ways has always been a, uh, very inspirational, I'd say. That's awesome. Well, I'm I'm a big fan of you and the work that you do and the work that the organization does. I'm I'm grateful that you guys are around, doing what you do. Um, is there? Uh, you guys have a website. Is there a website that people can go to if they're if they're interested? We do have a website. If you just type in Tlatoltapasoli on Google, you'll get my website that has resources, which is more of like links to a lot of my archives of, of my PDFs and just a couple of different materials. There's a chapter of the Florentine Codex you can read where I put in this feature where if you hover over a word, it'll give you the translation. Oh, that's right awesome. Right away. Yeah. Um, so uh, things like that that I have, it'll link you to apps that we've built over over time. You know, a lot of, the, a lot of different random projects, uh, audios, stories that we've translated, um, You'll find it on that website, but Facebook, if you're on Facebook, uh, that's where we post like more of the, most of the new things happening. 
and then um, our friend Kuitlawak, he he's one of our teachers, but he also runs his own organi- his own teaching group called um, Speak Nawak. Okay. And and his is very active on social media, so you'll if you want to just hear general things about where is there a class anywhere I can take, um, you'll see he's he'll definitely post that. He's he's very active on social media. For us, you know, if there's this big announcement about a class coming up, it will be posted on Facebook. Okay. Well, cool. So, and then your book, Learn Nawat, can um, people order that through your website, or do they get it through uh, Amazon or local bookstores? Uh, looks like Amazon has it, um, but if you search, if you just search it on Google, there's other affiliate groups you can buy it from. That if you if you don't want to necessarily get it from from Amazon, there are other groups that that sell it as well. But yeah, yeah. The, the general easy one for everyone is probably Amazon. Are you already gonna work on a third edition? You seem pretty busy. It seems like you <laughs> you probably have a third edition already in the works. No, no, not not the moment. I'm I'm thinking I. I'm working on other projects. I'm hoping to publish some other works out there. Um, so, you know, we have now there's now at stories, uh, uh, now at prayers, things like that that need to get out there. I think. Um, you, but I waited at least five years before I published the second edition. If there's a third one, I'd probably wait a little, at least five more years. For that. Nice. Well, I look forward to it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for coming on, man. Um, it's great to talk to you. Do you have uh, like your own social media? People can follow you online. Do you have a Twitter or anything? Um, not really. I'm not really too active on. I'm not really good at following up on things. But I, I do love answering questions. If anyone ever has questions, uh, my email is onetequeshe at gmail dot com. So um, I, yeah, I've gotten a lot of good questions over the years. People that want to collaborate on things. So uh, I feel emails worked out pretty well for that. Sweet. And and how do you spell that? One the number one. Tequeche spelled T E C U E X E at gmail.com. Awesome. Yeah, and I can vouch for that. You're really good at answering questions because I'm always bugging you with <laughs> random questions. Well, I, I love doing it because uh, a question means someone's interested in actively, you know, looking for for that knowledge. So I, I, I love, I love doing it as much as I can. <laughs> well, cool, man. Well, thank you very much for coming on. Our our very first return guest on Tales from Aztlantis, Jan Garcia. You could check out his book, Learn Nahuatl, Language of the Aztecs and Modern Nahuas. I highly recommend it. And until next time, Timoitase. Timoitase. Wan Shikilamiki. Tlemelawak nochkia pahtli. Amo nochipa wilik. Sankena nochipa kuali. And remember, the truth is like medicine. It doesn't always taste good, but it's always good for you. Thank you for listening to Tales from Aztlantis, a project of the Chimali Institute of Mesoamerican Arts. If you enjoy the show, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter. You can do this by visiting talesfromastlantis.com and clicking support the podcast. Your continued support will help keep the podcast ad-free and independent. Until next time, Timo Itase.